One of my favorite things to do when I have a guest is to speak with them and never mention never mention one of the things they are known the most for. I don't know why, but it's like some sort of game with me. But today's guest is Jack Canfield, and he is best known for, I think he's best known for his books. Um, he co-wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul. Like we saw those books everywhere. There's millions and millions in print. And we talked the whole time in this interview today and did not want, I think he might've mentioned it when he was, we were talking about uh, manifesting and he mentioned Chicken Soup for the Soul, but we didn't even talk about it because I don't know, like I said, it's a, it's a game with me because I think so many successful people have interesting things and sometimes their biggest achievements are not the interesting things. <laughs> so great interview today with Mr. Jack Canfield. He is the author of the book, The Success Principles. And at the end of the interview, he has a 10 day transformation download available at jackcanfield.com. Definitely want to go check that out. But we had a great conversation about love, about fear, the power of affirmations. Um, what, what does it mean to really be positive, to find your purpose, all of these things we covered in, in one hour. And it was such an honor. Um, I have so many interviews that I've done at this point, and this one was over a year in the making, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Don't forget to check out his book, The Success Principles. There's also a workbook and the free download, which I will post a link to in the show notes. As many of you know, I don't often have ads or sponsors for the podcast, so I would love it and appreciate it if you could share, subscribe, and rate the podcast because that is how I get the word out. And without any further delay, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Mr. Jack Canfield. Hi, and welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm very excited about our guest today. Mr. Jack Canfield is here. Hi, Jack. How are you? I'm good. Glad to be with you. Thank you so much. Oh, we have been talking. So I've been talking to your people for probably a year and a half. So here I we are. I saw on, on some notes you sent over, there were all these different dates, I think April, then May. <laughs> now, and I think we started talking last year and I have a frame of reference because my family and I have moved so many times and I walk a lot. And I remember seeing emails between your assistant and my, like, while I was walking in Kansas, while I was walking in Massachusetts. <laughs> and so I think about you and you were like with me in all these places. So I'm so glad you're here. And I am in the middle of the success principles. And I oh, say I'm in the middle. You're probably thinking, why is it taking you a year and a half to read this book? And the answer to that is it is so good. There are, there are certain books that I read that I don't want them to end. And that is this book. And so I read a little bit and I put it down and I read a little more. So we're going to talk about that book for sure. But I am so excited to talk to you. So 
leading off with the question, do you believe that love is a verb or a noun? Well, obviously it's both. We use it as a noun, but I think it, I, I think it's a verb. It's the act of loving that's really important. You know, it's something we have to choose to do and to step into. It's a vibration. It's a feeling. It's a it's an action. I mean, it's it's a lot of different things. I mean, that's why it's such a misused word, a misunderstood mm -hmm. word, an area where we have a lot of pain, a lot of joy. But uh, for me, I think I've really devoted my life to being an exoneration, exoneration, example of love and being someone who is as loving as I can be, as compassionate as I can be to do acts of love. Um, you know, we, we talk in our family, we talk about acts of kindness. Mm -hmm. We talk about acts of loverness. You know, what can I do? Loverness? Loverness, yeah. Loverness. Yeah, so what can I do to express my love to my wife, you know? And so every week I attempt to do two or three things, whether it's put a card on her, under her pillow that you'll find in the morning or at night or something in her sock drawer or to find her special flower and, you know, just put it somewhere where she's going to discover it to offer her a massage. You know, but the idea is that we need to express it, not just feel it. You know, yeah. um, I think that too many people feel love, but they don't let people know. And they don't put that love into action. I was reading something last night about you know, we walk past a homeless person and we'll put a dollar in their cup or we'll feel some empathy toward them. But what do we really do? Are we really expressing love for that portion of our population? Are we really acting mm. in ways that say, okay, I, I want to assist you in entering, ending your suffering, making life a little easier yeah. for you? So how do you show loverness <laughs> to someone <laughs> who you have I wouldn't say deemed unlovable because I don't think that that's in your vocabulary, but someone who's a little difficult in your life or someone you have a conflict with, is it a, is it a idea of putting action of love out there in that no, circumstance? Is it a thought? Yeah. I think if for that, it's more of a thought and a, and a, and a generation of a wave of energy. Mm. Um, I love some spiritual teacher once said many, many years ago, the sun always shines because that is the nature of the sun. The sun doesn't look down on New Orleans and say, oh my God, there's a bunch of sinning going on in New Orleans. I'm not <laughs> going to shine on New Orleans today. It just shines because that's what mm -hmm. suns are meant to do. And I think we are love and our job is to be that, to express that. And when we're not, it's because some belief, some thought, some they should or shouldn't be that way or do that thing gets in the way of our natural tendency. Little kids they love everybody. You know, I remember I was in a in a store in, in Portland once when my son was maybe six and we were at a Disney store and there was a skinhead was in there, you know, and he looked menacing. He had a shaved head, he had tattoos, he had a big long chain, you know, that goes on the wallet in the back, his pants were down low, his underwear was showing, you know, he looked <laughs> And And my son uh, was trying to get something off his shelf and he dropped it on his nose, like a, a, a cup or something. And it just hurt so bad. His eyes teared up. He couldn't see. He went running down the aisle and he runs into the skinhead and he just grabs his leg and hugs him. <laughs> and, and so here's this little kid, this totally innocent kid, hugging this menacing looking guy. And all of a sudden, the skinhead starts to hug my son. And then we're toward walking to him. He says, hey, this kid's okay. I like this kid. You know, <laughs> so, you know, everybody needs that love. My son had no judgment about who he was because he couldn't even see him. And right. so 
and a miracle happened in that moment. And I remember walking when he was in a little baby, when he had a little, I think they were called Jerry Carriers or something. And we had him, you know, on our, with my wife's chest, and snuggly, maybe it was. And we're walking down the street in New Orleans. And this woman who was obviously a stripper and probably on drugs is standing outside trying to get people to come into this bar. And she sees my son and her whole demeanor changes. Up until then, we were just someone she could basically try to get money from. And all of a sudden her heart opened up and she started mm -hmm. talking to my son and the whole thing shifted because of the innocence of that being called my son in that moment tapped into something in her. So I think to go back to your original question is that love is a choice we can extend to anybody. And when it's someone we have judgment about or don't like, or someone we think wronged us in some way, can we still just choose to send maybe a wave of light or just goodwill or wishes for their well-being. And I don't know if you've heard the story about Lester Levinson. Lester Levinson was a man who was sent home to die. And he literally had a couple months to live according to the doctors. And he thought, well, if I'm gonna die anyway, I ought to try to figure out what was this whole life about and all that. So he started going back over his life and remember all these people that had wronged him and all the resentment he had. And he made this decision just to, to forgive them and send them love, just to forgive them and send them love. And he kept doing that until there was no one left. I mean, he did it for Hitler and Mussolini and, you know, wow. all kinds of people in history, as well as people he actually knew. And he got better. He never died. Oh. And he started this whole movement that eventually evolved into the Sedona method, which is one, one of my friends, uh, Hild Wasson. Okay, teacher. I've heard of that, yeah. yeah. Lester was his teacher. And basically, it's just the idea when we can live in that state of love and choose to send that out. I saw a quote once that said, the love I give you is secondhand because I experienced it first. And so like if I send you love, I have to feel it. So it's always benefiting me when I do that. And so to get beyond the pre people's behaviors and just go, okay, inside there is a little kid who when he was one year old, I would have loved him. And that kid's mm. still there. It got crusted over by the conditioning, the hurts, the traumas, the blocking up, the getting solid and strong and mean and all that. But um, that's how I hold it anyway. I was just going to say, I think it's just your son because you had two stories with your son. <laughs> so I, I'm going to need more evidence of your theory here. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's, that's such an interesting point. I had a, um, an online court case uh, a couple weeks ago and we were in litigation over something so stupid and so drawn out and two stubborn people and it just didn't need to happen. But I remember when the opposing party came up on the Zoom, I'm, it's been so contentious with this person. We've tried to settle and it just didn't get there. But when I saw him, I was like, ooh, grr. And then I thought, I can't sit here for this entire duration and be angry because we've tried to do the right thing and we've tried to, you know, get over this. And so I started, do, I wasn't sending him love, but I was thinking, I was almost like praying for him or praying that things would be okay for him in the end. It was, it almost became a game <laughs> halfway through it. Like, how can I think of nice things to say about this person we've been contentious with? And it was interesting by the end, I wasn't, I just wanted the thing to be over. I mean, I really wanted the thing to be over anyway, but it does change everything when you can look at a situation and send love versus being a crab about it. <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is, I think it was Nelson Mandela that said, you know, being angry at someone is like 
drinking poison and hoping they'll die. You right. Know, it, it doesn't work like that, you know, and like you, you got to not feel angry because angry is not good for you. Right. And it creates acid in your body, which is not healthy, especially in times of COVID, it creates less, less resistance in your immune system, you know, so it's to everyone's advantage to just choose love. Well, I think I heard you say one time that we have two choices and you already said love is a choice, but -hmm. that the other choice is fear. Yes. Are those really our only two choices? Well, we often think that hate is the opposite of love, Mm -hmm. but it's really fear. I mean, if you could look at your court case, there was some place where you were afraid of you're going to get screwed. (laughs) Valuable. You're going to lose face. You're going to lose money. You're going to lose time, which you did because you were involved in it. Um, but basically, usually it's, it's the fear that then turns into the anger. I used to teach something called the total truth process that John Gray, the men are from Mars guy invented. And the idea was that there are five or six layers of emotions. The top one is anger. Underneath anger is hurt. Underneath hurt is fear. So if we're driving down or fear and hurt, I may have this wrong, but the idea you're driving down the freeway, someone cuts you off. What do you do? You flip them the finger. Well, that's anger. But underneath that anger, there was fear that you were about to get killed. Underneath the fear was the hurt that you didn't even pay attention to me. I must not be important in your life. You can go down back to eventually, you know, love and forgiveness. But the key is that I think for most men, it's safer to feel anger than it is to feel fear. You know, it makes you a sissy. It makes you a whip, makes you, you know, a baby, you know, you don't want to be there. And for women, they will often feel the hurt more than they'll get angry because they've been conditioned not to be a bitch, you know? So the reality is, that all of those emotions are part of the full emotional scale that we need to experience. Ultimately, we want to get down to the love. That's where we want to go. But sometimes you can't skip it. Like when you're you're talking to your kids and, you know, Johnny steals Mary's, um, you know, candy bar. And, you know, go go tell your brother. Then she hits him. Go tell your <laughs> brother you're sorry. I'm not sorry. He stole my candy bar. You know, so you got to go. I'm angry at you for stealing my candy bar. I'm afraid you're going to do it again. I'm hurt that you don't think my things are important. I want you not to do it. I take responsibility for leaving it out where you can find it. And I love you and I forgive you because you're my brother. Let's move on. You know, you got to go through those stages. But if you don't get to the love, you get stuck and then you're not happy. And all you want to feel happy. I have a 12 and 13 year old. I'm going to bring them in here and let them go over that candy bar <laughs> scenario. Cause I want to see how, because the- <laughs> you're so right though. I mean, it, it is all of those things. I mean, cause they, they bicker with each other. I mean, they're pretty good because they're so close in age, but when they do bicker, it is, it is exactly that dynamic. You just mentioned it was funny. They're not that civilized though. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, they can, they can learn to be, <laughs> we can work on it. I'm going to give them your book. Well, let's talk about the power of affirmations. I feel like you, I mean, your book is in its 10th anniversary edition and you talked about affirmations 10 years ago. And then, you know, now it's the, the hype, let's have a mantra, let's talk affirmations, but you're, you've got to be thinking, I've been talking about this for a long time, but with regard to affirmations, how is this a game changer? Like what is the core of having positive thoughts or having affirm affirmations that I guess you create, right? That you want to bring into your life. What could talk us through kind of the process of the affirmation and why, why it's a good thing. Well, I think there are two kinds of affirmations you have to understand. The first is that there are affirmations to basically create beliefs. So if you believe you're unworthy, 
having an affirmation that I am worthy of love, I'm worthy of success, I'm a good person, I can make anything happen I want. Those are just affirmations of your ability, your competence, your, your love ability, et cetera. And those are valuable. And so we need those to counter the conditioning or the limiting decisions we made when we were a kid. If your parents didn't love you, then you make a decision pretty on, I'm not lovable. You don't think it's their fault. When you're little, you don't know better. My mom's a drug addict, an alcoholic. She was conditioned. My my dad was mean or whatever. So basically, you've got to go back and redecide that decision. And but affirmations can help you overcome that. The other use of affirmations that's really really valuable is to accelerate the achievement of goals. And I think that's what you're referring to, sure. which is that if I can affirm that I already have the result, like I say, my goal is to make three hundred thousand dollars a year. So my affirmation can be, I'm so happy and grateful that I'm now earning a hundred or $300,000 a year. So you're affirming something that isn't actually true yet, but what that's doing is instructing your subconscious, figure out how to do this. Mm. Because the subconscious, you hear something about your brain. Your brain likes resolution, which means it doesn't like tension. It likes homeostasis, it likes harmony, it likes peace. So it's always working to get that. It works against your goals in the sense that when you set a goal, you've now created this disharmony that does everything you can to get you back down here where it's comfortable and you're used to it. So we have to create enough dynamic tension that the brain eventually goes, okay, the only way we're going to get resolution is if we move up here and figure out how to get Jack his goal. So reality is I, I purposely am creating this dynamic tension. I say I'm happily enjoying my vacation in Hawaii but I'm not, I'm in Santa Barbara, California. Now, if I keep saying that and visualizing being in Hawaii long enough, eventually it goes, okay, let's get this dude to Hawaii. So we can <laughs> I'm simplifying. How and taking my new best friend, Meredith. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Well, we're in a whole condo complex. <laughs> the, the whole point is that we want to make sure that we're creating the new reality in our mind so that then everything else has to move up to it. And the new research so says that it's about 66 to 100 days of not missing a day of either affirming, visualizing. See, Wow, that's a lot. It is, but there's some study yeah. done at, at the, uh, I think it was called the University of London, where they came up with that after years of research. And I think a lot of people, they'll try affirmations for three weeks or a month, nothing happens, and they give up. They go, well, yeah. I'm not a millionaire. I didn't lose weight. I don't feel happier. And that's like saying... You know, I added vitamin C to my regimen. Why don't I feel wonderful all the time? Well, it takes several months for that to kick in and to like start regulating what was missing in your 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 bloodstream. So I think the key is disciplined behavior over time to get the brain to change. The brain wants to protect you. The brain's whole function. The first thing that happens when you decide to do something is the brain goes, is this going to kill me? Is this going to make me uncomfortable? <laughs> It literally does that. Like if right. when you're out in a forest and you hear a rustling in the leaves over there, you need it to pay attention and notice, is that a tiger? Is that a bear? Or is that just a, you know, a chicken? So we have to pay attention. And it, when we do something new, it freaks the brain out. That's why it's so hard to maintain a diet or an exercise program or a new way of being, you know, asking for what you want, saying no to distractions. And so it takes discipline and commitment and what I say in my book is it takes support. That's why having like an accountability partner, a mastermind group, a mentor, a coach, someone to hold you accountable. And you know, if you're a solo entrepreneur, which I imagine you are, what happens is you don't have a boss. And so no one's telling you what to do. 
And so it's very easy to go back to the old behaviors of what's easy and comfortable. Yeah. And therefore, having a, an accountability partner, you have to check in with every day. Did I do my meditation? Did I exercise? Did I stick to my diet? Did I do my visualization? Whatever it might be. It's so valuable. And so many of us today are working alone from home because of COVID, working alone because we're solo entrepreneurs or we have two or three employees and that's it. Whereas before we worked for a company and we had to do what we were told to do, we wouldn't get paid. That's not the truth, the case anymore. So we tend to do what's easy. You know, we, we're, we're straightening out all the things in the drawer rather than making that difficult phone call. How many times can you sharpen your pencil, you know, kind of thing. Right. Well, you, you bring up something. You said um, our brain wants to protect us. And when we set a goal or decide to do something different, our brain says, Am I, you know, is this going to kill me? Which raises an interesting question because people that really want to say lose weight or start exercising. And they also have a component of maybe an uncertain childhood or trauma and just where uncertainty was thrown at them all the time or, you know, a loud parent who reacted crazily and he, just uncertain. Right. And so when your brain says, is this going to kill me? It, it can bring up that stuff. Right. And huh. so then you back off decisions and just end up spinning where you are. Absolutely. And you're right. Whenever you have trauma or you have like, you know, abuse or you have uh, shameful experiences, you were shamed, bullied, teased, whatever, anything that starts to look like that, we want to pull away from it. The brain says yeah. we've been we've been in a situation like this before. That didn't turn out well. Let's not do that again. And what we have to realize is that who we are at 30 and 40 and 50 is different than when we were at 12 or 13 or 10 or whatever, we have more, more capability. I'll give you just a quick story. I was uh, working with a woman, I'm writing a book with her right now called Unstuck. And it's about how to get past these limiting beliefs from childhood. And um, she was teaching this and I was in a group where she was teaching it and I was the volunteer on stage, if you will. And she said, what's the next big thing you wanna do? And I said, my goal is I wanna train a million trainers to um, teach my work. That's my big breakthrough goal. And she said, well, what are you doing to make that happen? And, and the reality was not much. And she said, okay, close your eyes and think about that goal and what comes up for you. And I started to cry. Hmm. And you know, you ever started to cry and you weren't expecting it? You know, it's just like, yeah. where'd that come from, right? <laughs> Story you know? of my life. <laughs> yeah, where'd that come from? And she said, what's going on? I'm saying, I'm remembering that when I was in high school, I graduated high school. I went off to Harvard, which is where I went to school. I got a scholarship to go to Harvard. I was poor. And my girlfriend was one year behind me. She was a junior when I graduated. She would become a senior. And when I went off to college, I was madly in love with her. And I lost her because she was still there dating other guys. And she fell in love and we never got married. And, and it was this sense of like, the decision that I made was every time I go to pursue my big dream, I lose the love of my life. And so here I am unconsciously believing that if I go after the stream, I'm going to lose my wife. Well, I'm happily married to for, you know, 20 years. And yeah. but it was like, it came up out of nowhere. And what she said to me, it was so powerful. She said, Jack, you're not 18 years old. You have a lot more skill, a lot more knowledge, a lot more awareness than you had when you were 18. You know how to maintain that relationship, you know, doing some of the things we just talked about, all the acts of love and so forth, than you did when you were 18. So there's no worry. You can go do this. And I've been doing it. I've now trained 5,000 trainers to teach this work in 107 right. countries. And now we're starting to train trainers or trainers. But I might still not be doing that had I not got in touch with that unconscious limiting belief that every time I go to do it, something in me 
just hesitate yeah. and stop and take the action. And it's that survival mechanism that, you know, our animal brain says, ah, this is terrible. I'm not doing it. And we stay right. there where if you take a minute and you like your friend, you know, allows you to connect the dots, you're not right. going to lose your wife if you start working on your program. Um, but I, I have found that so many times that when I'm stuck, it's usually something from way back then that just I'm hung up on. And I have to tell myself, you are a 41 year old <laughs> grown woman with your own kids. Why are you, why are you being six-year-old Meredith? Because six-year-old Meredith, you know, just wanted to eat cookies and be loved, which 41 year old Meredith also probably <laughs> likes to do. We all, we all go there and we, we probably <laughs> when we're under stress, eat those cookies. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, um, to segue into the success principles, one of my favorite, let me see, I had the big page folded. Oh, where did it go? Here it is. Um, this is early on in the book, but I feel like this is my audience needs to, we need to talk about this the chapter that says you have to give up, I can't. If you're going to be successful, you need to give up the phrase, I can't, and all of its cousins, such as I wish I were able to. The words I can't actually disempower you. They actually make you weaker when you say them. So to segue from affirmations and into the success principles, how do we get there? How do we get away from I can't? How do we say affirmations that don't feel real how, how do we get to that step because i think that's where many of us are stuck it's that initial push because our initial reaction is no i can't right and as long as you believe you can't you won't i mean that's, that's just yeah. a fulfilling prophecy and i think what happens is when i have my workshops i have people put their arm out to the side like this and i push down on their arm resist and they're strong I'll say, I can't do something. I can't play the violin, their arm goes weak. Now I'll say, I can play the violin. Even if they don't play the violin, I say, I can play the violin, their arm stays strong. Now, what happens is anything you say I can't do weakens you, even if it's something you can't do. Yeah. However, if you say, see, here's the truth. You could learn to play the violin. You have the capacity to do that. You can learn to fly an airplane. You can learn to sing you know, poetry, whatever. The point being, you haven't chosen to do it. But as soon as I say, I can't, it weakens you. Now, what we know from neuroscience is when you say certain words, can't, try, have to, um, you know, wish I were able to, any of those things that are like that, what happens is it slows the firing down. You have synapses in the brain and there's an electrochemical jump that goes across there, to, you know, really fast. When you say, I can't, it slows that down. This whole set of muscles goes weak. So we can test any thought, any vibration, any food, you can put a food right next to your solar plexus, like a peanut butter. If your arm goes weak, you shouldn't be eating that. If oh. it should, I'll have people come up on, now some people are fine, they test fine with peanut butter. Blast if, I put, me. <laughs> if I put sugar under most, on most people's chest, they go instantly go weak. Now, do they see that? Oh, they feel do they it. Know that they know what the food is? Like, or is it a no, trick no, question? No, no. <laughs> we can do it. We can do it where they don't know it and they can do it where really? they do know it. It doesn't matter. Here's the weird part too. I can write the word, I hate you on a piece of paper. And I can write the words, I love you on a piece of paper, label them one and two. And then I don't even know which one it is. So it's a double blind experiment. You hand me one, I give it to the person on stage. We put the envelope next to their chest. We test them. If it goes weak, they open it up. It always says, I hate you. If it says strong, they open it up. It always says, I love you. So we know that everything you think, including when you're writing, any vibration you put into the universe, that vibration goes with it. In India, 
they will not let you in the kitchen cooking food if you're not in a state of happiness, love, and joy, because they know the vibration you're in goes into the food. I have a chiropractor friend. If he's in a really terrible mood, he cancels all his patients for the day because he says, my energy is as important as these, you know, the adjustments that he does. And so we have to realize that's really, really critically important. You know, you, you, your kids know when you're in a bad mood. Oh, yes. They know when you're in a good mood. <laughs> You know, I mean, I can say I hate you with a smile and actually be loving you. You notice it. I'm just kidding. But if I, if I, I can say I love you when I'm really pissed off and you notice I'm lying, you know, because we feel the vibration, the energy. So everything is vibration. Everything is energy. And it's either a high vibration, which is love, joy, forgiveness, uh, gratitude, appreciation, or it's a low vibration. You know, we say, what do we say? When we're depressed, we say, I feel low. I feel down depressed, press down, or we say, man, I feel high, right? So our language includes it, right? We, we just, it's intuitive, we know it. So we wanna be, think about, if you know this person's a bummer to be around, that person's fun to be around, who do you gravitate to? You right. know, if you were in real life, before we knew Robin Williams was really depressed and he's over here making everyone laugh and there's this other guy over here telling everyone how bad the world is, where do we wanna go? We, we just gravitate to where the joy is, where the happiness is. So basically, you first of all, you want to be that, then people gravitate toward you, they want to do business right. with you, they surround you, they give you things, etc. Um, but so to go back to Kent, which is where we started long, <laughs> long way around. Uh, we basically, the only way you change anything, Meredith, is by awareness and choice. So first of all, we have to be aware that Kent has a cost. Okay. Mm -hmm. So first of all, we do that. I get everyone in my seminars to stand up, find a partner, and we do it. So they know I just didn't pay someone to come up on stage <laughs> and, and do that. They feel it in their own body. Go, wow, that's true. Now that I'm aware there's a cost, what's my choice? My choice is to become aware every time I say it and start replacing it. Place, replace I can't with I choose to, or I choose not to. I can if I want to. I, I, you know, I will attempt it, whatever. But the idea being that now I have choice. And that's true with yeah, anything. Yeah. Without choice, without awareness, there's no choice. If you're standing on my foot and I'm not aware of it, I can't hold you responsible. But once you're aware of it and say, hey, you're standing on my foot, now I can get upset with you if you don't move, right? Because you weren't aware, you didn't know. Think about it, someone's walking down the aisle in a movie and they step on your foot and your first reaction is it's like, ah! you look up and you see it's a blind person with a cane. All of a sudden your whole demeanor changes because you know they were not aware. They couldn't be aware, they couldn't see. So yeah. awareness. Now, how do we become aware? We become aware by reading books, by listening to programs like yours, by taking seminars, by meditating, which always increases our awareness over time. Um, and, you know, watching TED Talks, you know, whatever it is that's going to surround you with people whose consciousness and awareness is beyond yours so that they can teach you and you can learn. So prior to awareness comes a, a decision or a desire, correct? I mean, because you have to want to get your head out of the sand. And, and one of two things creates that either huge pain, my back hurts for the last two months, I don't know why I've got to find a solution. Or I see an inspiring speaker and I go, I want to be like that. That person's happy all the time. I want to be like them. Mother Teresa, she's always happy. She's, how's that possible? I'm curious. Let's go find out why she's that way. Or here's this guy, Jack, he was poor. Now he's worth millions of dollars. How do you do that? I'm inspired by that. You know, uh, or that person has a great marriage. What's her secret? Or your wife comes to you and says, honey, I'm thinking of filing for divorce. Well, that'll get your attention. Or you wreck your car or you get cancer. You know, I like to believe that we can either go consciously or we can be 
hit up on the side of the head if you don't go consciously. You know, so if you pay attention and you do your meditation and you respond to feedback and you're open to it and you don't resist it, then you probably get the clues in time not to have the, the diseases, the accidents, the divorces, and so forth. Right. Well, that's funny you mentioned that because I am very aware of when I need to slow down. I have not always been that way. I made a joke that God used to break my foot when I needed to stop. And I, because I would sprain an ankle or break a foot <laughs> when I needed to stop, I would, I was headed out, um, out to work one day and slipped in my driveway with my file folders. Cause I was in a huff. I was mad. <laughs> you know, this was 10 years ago and down I went broken foot. And it was because, you know, I needed to slow down. So you're right. And I try now to not get slapped up upside the head because it is much better when it's on your own terms. <laughs> well, well, let's we talk would, about, oh, go ahead. No, we always say inspiration pulls, pain pushes. You're going to get there either way, but wouldn't you rather get there without pain? That's why it's valuable for people to watch, you know, things like yours yeah. things, because then they get inspired and they don't have so much pain to, to move them along the way. Oh, I like that. I like that. So um, last question, let's talk about your book. Um, this is obviously just an incredible guidebook. I encourage anyone who, I guess with a pulse <laughs> to read this book because it's called the success principles. What is your favorite? And there's a lot of principles in here, but is there a favorite principle that if someone came to you and they said, I hate my life. I need to change. I don't know where to start. Is there one that you lead with? Well, I always lead with hundred percent responsibility. I mean, if I hate my life, then you've created the life you hate, or you've allowed it to happen to you, you know, either create, promote, or allow it. So basically we start there, you know, mm -hmm. so what are you doing that's making your life show up the way it shows up? What are you thinking? What are you imagining? What are you doing? What are you not doing? that's creating that. And then we look at, well, what is it you would like to be experiencing? It's usually the opposite, you know, more love, more money, more free time, more freedom, more rest, more happiness, more joy, more play, whatever. And so then the question becomes, okay, what are the thoughts we need to think? What are the visualizations we need to have? What are the behaviors we need to choose to do to get there? And the book really, after that first couple of chapters is really all about what are the things that successful people do? I interviewed 75 ultra successful people, Olympic athletes, generals in the army, you know, movie stars, um, top salespeople, happy people, whatever, and looked at, are these principles that I've lived my life by, are they idiosyncratic to me or are they universal? And I determined after all those interviews, they were universal. And I used a lot of their stories to illustrate that in the book. And um, then we rewrote the book 10 years later because a lot of people said, well, you know, uh, John Gray and Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, I can't relate to them. I always thought, wow, if, if they did these things and they're successful, I'm going to go, I want to do what they do. Most people went, they're, they're, they're from a different gene pool. They, they didn't come from planet Earth, you know, they're not like me. So now the book has a lot more stories of people who are just normal everyday people who applied the principles from the first edition and now are having these amazing lives. And, um, but things like, we talked about visualization, affirmations, having an accountability partner, having a support group, uh, taking action, asking for what you want, saying no. Most people can't say no. They're too uncomfortable right. saying no. Uh, I was just listening to a psychiatrist say the other day, one of the main things that allows people to be successful is the willingness to experience the discomfort that comes with the word no. 
when you say it, you know, because most of us don't want to have to feel that feeling when we turn somebody down, when we say no to their request, etc. Um, and you think of your kids, they do everything they can to make you feel guilty when you say no. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes That's they right. succeed, you know, but the idea being that um, rejecting rejection is important. Like, you know, we rejected 144 times Chicken Soup for the Soul got rejected. Yes. We're not going to publish it. 145th publisher said yes. So you've got to get used to rejection. Ask, 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 ask. There's the idea of learning how to manage your emotions, learning how to uh, not you know, be angry all the time, et cetera. The whole chapter on the total truth process, which we talked about earlier, um, and how to, be, how to be successful in the digital age. You know, how do you not become a digital addict? You know, most people spend three to six hours a day on their computers looking at things that are not really that useful. You know, right. literally, if you go to look on something on Google and you get sidetracked, the next thing you're watching reruns of SNL, and then at the bottom of that, there's something like, you know, here's the people 40 years ago. What do they look like now? You know, and oh, you're, gosh, you're those get me these, every time. <laughs> I know you look at all this stupid stuff, you know, so we have to learn how to how to have our blinders on and stay focused, you know, learning how to play. That's a big thing for people learning mm. how to get enough sleep. So anyway, there's a whole bunch of stuff in the book about how to be successful. And um, and I will say this too, for a lot of people, they look at that book and it overwhelms them. But we did come out with this. I don't know if you've seen this. This is our uh, Success Principles workbook. There's only 17 <laughs> principles instead of 67. And it's a, it's a coaching program between the covers of a book. So we actually take the 17 most important principles in order because it's a system mm -hmm. and show you how to actualize it. There's worksheets, there's uh, exercises. So at the end of that seven, I say do 17 weeks of it, you know, one, one a week, you're totally transformed. You are not the same sure. person. Oh, I love it. And, and that the first principle take 100% responsibility for your life. That is such a game changer. It mm -hmm. really is. It, it not only allows you to move forward, but it allows you to stop blaming because if you can just take responsibility for it, then it's on you. <laughs> it really right. clears like a whole block of stuff. Yeah. yeah, most people don't want that because then they think they have to feel guilty. It's not about guilt, yeah. it's about freedom, you know? Mm. And it's the hardest one, let me tell you, I, I was on a radio show not too long ago and someone called in and said, so I'm responsible for my cancer? I said, well, I don't sit next to God up in heaven, I don't know, but let me tell you this. Let me ask you a bunch of questions. Have you mostly eaten a plant-based diet most of your life? No. Do you drink alcohol? Yes. Do you eat a lot of sugar? Yes. Do you detox your body on any kind of regular basis? No. Do you wear um, wireless headphones like you're wearing right now? Yes. Not the best thing. You can do some research on that. Uh, <laughs> do you hold your phone a lot when you're playing games in your left hand? Yes. Do you live near a cell tower? Yes. You know, we just went down all these. Do you wear lipstick? Yes. Most branded lipsticks have anywhere from 17 to 40 known carcinogens in them. Now there are organic lipsticks, but you ought to find out which ones. Do you use a fluoride toothpaste? <laughs> fluoride actually calcifies the pineal gland in the brain. Yeah. I mean, there's a ton of stuff. Nobody, nobody does the research. So you're like a person that has a car and you never open the, the manual that's in the glove compartment to figure out how much oil it needs, how much air it needs in the tires and so on and so forth. So again, they say, well, I didn't know all that. Well, whose responsibility it is to know? You know, you have to take responsibility. We have been seduced by our culture, advertisement, television, big pharma, 
big oil, you know, we can go down the line of all the things, you know, the food industry that wants to eat more sugar and carbs, because that's what they can put in boxes that last forever with, you know, things in them that you don't want to eat as well to make them not deteriorate and oxidize. Right. So we have to be responsible. And um, that's like, most people don't want to take the time. They'd rather watch, you know, reruns of uh, ER again or something like that. Right. And when you know better, you do better, right? Dr. Maya Angelou, when you, when you learn that, I, those of you listening and not watching, I wiped my lipstick off when he said, <laughs> I had no idea. I don't wear a lot of lipstick, but you know, for these things, they get a little fancy. Um, but yeah, the, when you know better, you do better. And that's growth. I, I learn stuff every day and go, Oh, I should probably not do that anymore. Or I should do this, you know? So, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So I want to ask you the question I asked most of my guests, but first let's talk about your 10 day transformation download that you have available for free for everyone. Yeah. So what do we have? It's called the 10 day transformation success challenge transformation. And you just go to jackcanfield.com forward slash transformation and you'll get uh, an email every day, which will have about a three to five minute video in it. You watch that at the end of it, we give you a little assignment for the day. Some little thing to do throughout the day that'll help you Velcro this new principle into your brain. So you actually becomes a part of you. And I, I would tell you, there's a guy named Chris Jarvis who sent me an article about a year ago, said, I got this thing and I did the first six and I stopped. And then I got it again and I did it about four, four weeks and I stopped. And then he said, I was in a hospital, I broke my leg and I, I had nothing better to do. So I did all 10. <laughs> and he said, I made a million dollars extra that year. And the title of his little blog that he wrote was how a free 10 day transformation made me an extra million dollars last year. So- and I tell you the that, more to, you know, <laughs> yeah, I tell you that to inspire you to do it because it can make that kind of difference in your life. It's free and um, it, it's powerful. It's transformational. It's my gift. Wonderful. To wonderful. So Mr. Canfield, this podcast is called the same 24 hours. And I came up with the idea because we all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in this 24 hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. So I like to ask my guest, what is something that you do? on a daily basis that you can point to that, you know, a, a hack or, or something that really makes the most of your 24 hours? Well, besides playing ping pong with my wife, which we've started doing <laughs> since the pandemic started, <laughs> so much fun. The other thing is I, I teach this as well, but I do it. It's called the hour of power. So in the morning, I do 20 minutes of meditation, 20 minutes of vigorous exercise, usually high intensity, high intensity interval training. And then I do 20 minutes of reading something uplifting, spiritual, inspiring, that kind of thing. So that makes me wiser, healthier, and happier. And if you do that at the end of the year, you've spent, you know, if an hour a day adds up to 365 hours divided by a 40 hour work week, that's nine and a half weeks of 40 hour weeks. That's two months of really working on yourself deeply but it's a discipline. Now, if you feel like you can't do an hour, do 10 minutes of each, do five minutes of each, but get started. And you, that discipline will come in over time. It'll change your life. Your day goes better. You feel more energy. You feel happier. And um, that's, if I had one hack, that would be it. I love it. And I think that is in your book somewhere because when I saw nine weeks, I said, wait a minute, I got out my calculator. I was like, this can't be right. I know this is the 10th anniversary revised edition, but this math is not right. And it is shocking. I mean, it's actually shocking. And so when you think about, oh, I'm spending three hours on Netflix, no offense yeah. to Mark Randolph, the co-founder of Netflix, who I talked to last week, but um, 
that adds up too. That's like 18 weeks, you know, so uh, that's not 27. Netflix has come up with a lot of great things to watch. Here's the problem. The average American spends six hours a day in front of a television or a computer. Yeah. And I'm I'm not talking about working hours in front of a computer. I'm talking about, you know, watching television on a computer, surfing the net on a computer, whatever. If you cut out one hour a day, as we said, 365 hours. So I learned about that math when my mentor told me, cut out one hour of TV a day. And he said, you know, you, everyone said, I don't have time for that. Well, come on, you're watching three to six hours of television. Here's the worst part. If you watch an hour of television a day, that's one, how to say this. If you watch six hours of television a day, which is the average, that's one fourth of a day, 24 hours, right? That means by the time you're 60, you'll have spent 15 years with no sleep, 15 years, 24 hour days, watching television. I don't think this brain was evolved over millions of years to be spent passively taking in messages from other people. I I just don't think it was evolved for that. Right, and that's the antidote to the excuse, I don't have any time, right? If you've got 15 years (laughs) of television bank. Oh, Mr. Canfield, thank you so much. This is such an honor. I appreciate your time. And um, I look forward to taking your download and transforming getting my million dollars. Okay, there you go. (laughs) Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Same 24 Hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.